0: guys, and welcome back to DuraLik Said Legs. Today we're going to be discussing the basics of international law. Starting with what is international law and where it stems from, moving on to sources of international law, then to courts and enforcement, and lastly to criticism. So, why we decided to make this episode? It's because we want to introduce the topic of international law altogether for the following episodes. And we thought, despite the fact that many people know about international law, Few people actually understand what it is and how it interplays with our daily lives and our national law systems. So let's get started with our first point. What is international law and where does it stem from? You have to understand that international law is a completely different field of law and its characteristics are completely different from any national system. It has two main areas private international law which regulates private law affairs of an international nature for example citizen from country a steals a bike in country b from citizen in country c and then private international law applies in order to figure out what the jurisdiction is and what law applies in this situation and the second main area is public international law which is a body of rules and principles that regulate the conduct and relations of states international organizations and individuals. If you've ever heard of international law, you were probably referring to this one as it relates to traditional fields such as diplomatic relations, war and peace, law of the seas, etc. And modern fields like environmental law, human rights, international organizations, and others. The very first thing and the main idea that you have to get about international law is state sovereignty. Basically, state sovereignty relates to the fact that states are allowed to govern themselves and be autonomous from other states. So an idea of independence of states from one another. And state sovereignty has different implications, such as the fact that in international law, there is no international legislative body, like you would have a parliament in national systems. It's only treaties and customary international law, which are sources that Anna is going to talk about later, to which states agree because they want to agree to them, not because they were given by a higher authority. Furthermore, there's no executive body to enforce rules like you would have police in a state. Everybody respects international law just for the sake of keeping a promise. And lastly, there is no court with compulsory jurisdiction in international law. So to better understand these differences, think about national law system as a vertical system in which you have an authority that gives and enforces the rules. International law is the complete opposite, it is a horizontal system in which states do not have authority over each other and would rather just make promises to each other and respect them in order to gain either economic or political advantages. But how did international law even come to be? It basically originated in the need of states to coexist with each other, so to maintain international peace and security. The subjects of international law are not only states, however, they can also be international organizations like the UN or the European Union. And interestingly, subjects of international law can also be individuals, as we do have human rights and under international human rights treaties, like the European Convention of Human Rights, for example.
1: So guys, let's talk about sources of international law. These are specifically laid down within Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice, which is also short as the ICJ statute. And basically we can distinguish between primary and secondary sources of international law. So primary sources are kind of more prominent source of international law, whereas secondary sources of international law means they're kind of used to determine the rule of laws if there's like legal ambiguity. But let's go with the primary sources first. We have three. The first one is international treaties and conventions which are basically international agreements concluded between states and they are in a written form and are governed by international law. In the second are customs, which are put together by the Latin phrases usos and opinio juris, which means state practice and general exception of the legal obligations. So basically, the states uniformly accept that this is a custom, everybody practices this custom, and they're all agreeing on it, they're all bound by it, basically. Like They're all agreeing and they're all okay with it. That's what makes up a custom and also state practice. Then, kind of example of a custom would be the use Kogan's norms, which are non derogable international norms, ergo omnis, and they are the prohibition of torture or genocide or something like that. And they're generally complied with and accepted, and they can never not be complied with. So they are just already bound by it. They don't have to accept these Jus Kogan's norms, they are already bound by them and it's also uniformly accepted that this is a good practice, and um, that's why they're non-derogable, so they can't be derogated from in any situation ever. Like, prohibition of torture, like that will always prevail even in the war times, etc. Finally, we have the general principles, which fill the gaps between already existing treaties such as the principle of good faith. So if there's, again, like kind of like, legal ambiguity, don't know what's kind of happening, use general principles that kind of guide the way. And then there are also subsidiary means of international law, which are usually used for the determination of rules of law, which are judicial decisions and scholarly writings. But I don't feel like I have to explain them because they're somewhat self-explanatory.
0: Now that we've established what sources are in international law, let's talk a bit about enforcement in courts. Like we mentioned in the first part, the main difference between international and national law is state sovereignty, meaning that there is no executive body to enforce rules and no court with compulsory jurisdiction. You have to understand that the international law system is decentralized. There is no central authority to make states act in accordance to international law. So you might wonder if there is no official authority to actually do something about states violating international law. What happens when there is a violation of international law? Well, firstly, states start disputes against each other. And as per Article 2, paragraph 3 of the UN Charter, which is a treaty signed by most member states in the world, states have to settle their disputes peacefully, namely either through mediation, arbitration, or other freely chosen methods. Dispute settlement entails consensual lawmaking. There can be no dispute settlement that can function properly without an agreement beforehand. So basically what this means is that if there is a violation of international law, there will be adjudication by consent in most cases. So let's talk a bit about the two main types of legal dispute settlement that are available in international law. The first main type of legal dispute settlement that we're going to talk about is arbitration, which always leads to a binding result. In all cases of arbitration, a third party is involved, and it can either be a single arbitrator or each party can appoint their own arbitrator, and then those two will appoint a third arbitrator. But the downside to this is that arbitration can be really expensive. However, it is a very flexible method of dispute settlement, as the scope and jurisdiction of the dispute is established beforehand, the tribunal can be chosen beforehand, and also the applicable law can be established by the parties. The other main type of legal dispute settlement in international law is judicial settlement, which became popular after the Second World War in the later half of the 20th century. One very popular example and one of the first courts of international judicial settlement established is the European Court of Human Rights. In judicial settlement, you can either have specialized tribunals for dispute settlements, which deal with specific purposes, or tribunals that deal with general purposes, like the International Court of Justice. Usually, states are more inclined to accept jurisdiction of a tribunal of specific purposes rather than general purposes. Now we're going to talk a bit about the most important and most popular, arguably, courts of international law. And obviously, we're going to mention the International Court of Justice, which is located here in the Netherlands, in The Hague it is considered to be the most important international tribunal it is a permanent court meaning that it was not established for a special purpose like the international military tribunal of nuremberg for example and it has two main competences settlement of disputes between states and advisory jurisdictions meaning giving legalized advice to the un and specialized agencies but does this mean that the icj just has universal jurisdiction and can just settle any matters anywhere no, it doesn't, since you states basically accept its jurisdiction when signing the ICJ statute, meaning that it is only binding to the parties that can also make reservations. A certain state, for example, won't accept the jurisdiction on matters of environmental law or any other matters. Reservations can be very far-reaching. The ICJ can exert its jurisdiction on states that have not signed its treaty, only if they subject themselves to the jurisdiction of the court. Our second example, and one court that we've actually talked about in our first episode, is the European Court of Human Rights, which is more of a regional court created by the Council of Europe. Attention, Council of Europe, not the EU and it is based on the European Convention of Human Rights which is signed by states vouching to uphold these rights in their national jurisdictions. The European Court of Human Rights only has jurisdiction in matters in which a citizen lodges a complaint about a national state violating their human rights. The court then rules on the matter and in cases when a violation is found, states are obliged to execute the decision of the court. Decisions issued by the court are final and cannot be appealed upon. The main consequence for the violating member states is to ensure that the violation never occurs again. They can do this even by changing their national laws in extreme cases. Victims are entitled to just satisfaction, which are damages awarded by the state found to be in violation. These can either be pecuniary damages or the rejudication of the case.
1: Now that we know a bit more about international law and the ICJ itself, (laughs) we can talk a bit more about criticism, so critically reflect on what we've talked about earlier. Many scholars specifically believe that international law does not always work, especially not when it's public international law. As here, legislation is made by one person, it can also be a multitude of people, but usually it's like one person that kind of like they all agree on it, you know. And that legislation will be made binding on the whole community, but it can only be made binding if those countries actually sign the agreement and they say submit their sovereignty to some extent to this agreement. So they're wanting to be bound by this. You can already kind of see that as a bit problematic because what we talked about while we were talking about eu law it was a little bit different so in the eu there's direct effect like we talked about and supremacy of eu law over national law so there is already this sort of lower threshold that countries need to meet so taking an example for the Russian war in Ukraine or Putin's war in the Ukraine, it can be seen that even a judgment by the ICJ does not necessarily stop Russian conduct in Ukraine and violations of international norms, such as crimes against humanity and war crimes, continuously occur. And because as we've seen, Ukraine actually took Russia to the ICJ for violation of international norms. The judgment is being delivered, I think, today at 4 p.m. Today is the 15th of March at 4 p.m. But you can see that even though this judgment is being delivered now, Russia hasn't stopped, or Putin hasn't stopped invading the ukraine and hasn't stopped his conduct in bombing various locations maternity hospitals kindergartens etc like those are war crimes they're condemned by the international community that's what he's being tried for or russia is being tried for but he's still he's still there, he's still doing his conduct, like, see, like, he's not bound by it, he can only be bound by this judgment if he would confer his sovereignty, the country's sovereignty, to the ICJ, and then, again, um, sanctions, etc., that would stem from that. But because those countries, they, they they know that they're doing something wrong, they won't just confer their sovereignty just like that, just for the sake of moral obligations and overall peace, because, obviously, yeah, he started the war in Ukraine, And then another example is the incarceration of Muslims in China, which is also still ongoing even though the international community has condemned it. Human rights in China, specifically Peking, are not very well upheld and there's loads of violations against the freedom of speech, free media, etc. Like those things are being condemned by the international community yet they haven't stopped, they've been ongoing for a while. And you just have to ask you those questions like which country is going to stand up against China in the first place and bring a claim against China in front of the ICJ? And then will China even confer Their sovereignty to the court and be bound by judgment clearly knowing that they have violated international laws so like you can see this is all really unlikely and it's a lot of like hypothesizing about what could happen what couldn't happen you know and there isn't, like, what other mechanism is there in place in order to convict those countries of such gross human rights violations? This is all very difficult to say, because there isn't, like, this uniform body that everyone is bound by can actually confer landmark decisions, like big judgments. It doesn't really exist besides the ICJ. But again, you see, this is all an intertwined web. But on the other hand, like, the ICJ does work in certain other dispute mechanisms, so... Uh, for example, take the Vienna Convention on the International Sale of Goods. This is one of the most successful international law treaties that has ever been made, quite literally. And it is so successful because it harmonizes trade law, which increases legal certainty and then lowers transaction costs. But you also have to keep in mind here that this concerns private international law. Um, So it's a different area to public international law, what we were talking about earlier, and does it only concerns private disputes between companies within um, respective countries. So it's not country against country, but it's company against company within two countries. So it's a little bit different and you can kind of see why it works a little bit more there. so guys this wraps up today's episode on the basics of international law it's kind of an introduction into the topic and it's kind of like a mini pre-episode for next week's episode with dr mandola chavica where we're going to talk about law within a digital society and also a little bit of international law because her expertise lies within both of those topics so yeah We both really hope that you enjoyed this episode today and let us know any feedback, any topics that you want to see in the future. You know the drill. You can find us on Instagram at Pod, That's one word. And we'll see you next episode, which is actually going to come out this Sunday. So stay tuned. We're going to be posting about it on our social media. So stay tuned and we'll see you soon.